most people meeting me or seeing me on telly will think, oh, there's a woman with confidence. But occasionally, things will happen to me where my confidence will get knocked. I was opening this factory up in Manchester that was on its knees, and I wanted to see if we could create a product in this country that was commercial and that could bring manufacturing back. And I came up with a brand called Kinky Knickers. A wonderful circular thing. We'll create something, we'll sell something, we'll make jobs. So we make these kinky knickers and it's extraordinary. I absolutely loved it. And I decide I'm going to go out and try and sell it into the retailers because I just knew that these guys in the factory wouldn't be able to connect with a lot of the chief execs. And I, I was lucky enough, I was in a position of authority and known that I was able to do that. And I spent this day half hour with every chief exec of some of the biggest businesses in this country and I was on the back of the motorbike with this guy Russ and he'll say one-liners to me and I'm just laughing on the back of this bike it's just I can't even start to repeat them some of them are terribly naughty but nevertheless I went and saw the chief exec of Boots who bought 10,000 pairs Boots don't even sell knickers but he said yeah Mary of course we'll do this for you Liberty's bought them Harvey Nicks bought them and the last one was to one of the biggest retailers who sell a lot of knickers. We can't mention any names. And my business partner, Peter, says, I'll meet you there, Em. I'll come in with you. On the walls were all the pictures of all the ex-chairmans over the hundreds of years, all men. And they had this new chief exec. I didn't know him. He shakes my hand, sits down, and he just turns to Peter and goes, Oh, Panerai. Nice watch. And Panerai watches are these just beautiful, big, chunky watches that are sort of a slight uniform of a man who's achieved. Looks at it, he's got the Panerai on. Connection. Man to man. Dapper man to dapper man. I get you. And then he spoke to Peter the whole time. I am sitting there on the other side of the table. And Peter says, well, Mary's been doing this project. You know, she's been working in the north of England. She's been bringing this factory back to life. But he goes, I'll let Mary tell it. And he goes, no, 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 continue to Peter. So Peter continues and he's starting to get flushed, looking, knowing that I'm kind of his boss. I'm the agency, Peter, and he's looking at me going, this is just not right. Basically, what was happening here was an unconscious bias. Actually, there was a bit more than an unconscious. This guy kind of knew what he was doing. I think he looked at me and thought, I connect with this bloke, I don't connect with you. He felt comfortable talking to him because they wore the same Panerai watch after all. They looked the same, they had the same sort of suit, and I was sidelined. Now, it wasn't that I felt my power had been taken. What I felt that the something that I had spent so much time and love and energy giving was just diminished. And I felt sad. And I know that many women often have this feeling. And we have to change that. And we have to be strong enough to say, this isn't acceptable. All the other chief execs who were in the positions to say yes or no, just said, yeah, we'll order this amount. He said, let me think about this. And so we left. Even in my 50s, I wasn't able to say to that guy, I'm stopping this meeting now because this isn't working and you can stuff my knickers right up your parts. Didn't do that. I wish I had. Anyway, he never bought the knickers. 
But we didn't need him. I didn't even want my little knickers going near his business. So, knickers to you. If you're listening, knickers! Welcome back. I'm back in the kitchen. It's early morning. We have the birds tweeting outside. Well, I'm in the kitchen, the attic of my office. I'm looking at the big fruit bowl we've laid out for the people. They haven't quite arrived yet. And (laughs) I'm with Emily, my culture director at Portas Agency. Good morning, Emily. Good morning, Mary. And who have we got on the show today, Emily? It's Elizabeth Day. When I was doing the first series of the podcast generally the men that I would approach to be on it felt that they hadn't failed at all in life. What's been happening this week? Busy, busy week. I know. We had an off-site yesterday, which was lovely. Yeah, like, to, like to get out and about, don't we? I like that. They, they book the off-sites. <laughs> I never know where I'm turning up so that we can just come up with some great ideas for our clients. And we were out in Clerkenwell. Yeah. And then we went around Design Week, didn't we? Yeah, we thought, because it was a lovely sunny day and we stepped outside and it was all these kind of fancy people walking around. So we... <laughs> We registered quickly and snuck in. I pretended I was an architect. Yes, I got. I, I had to part my ego because you have to. That's another thing. Because my my PA said, "Don't worry, I've registered you, Mary." And 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 Emily, you hadn't been registered. I hadn't. So you registered yourself as an architect, and then I looked at my <laughs> register pass. And it just said, "Mary Porter's public." public. <laughs> I, I had my... to go. It doesn't matter. And it little it, it kind of little did. voice in me did. Well, it, well, I it did. parked it though no you did you parked it I was swanning around <laughs> pretending I was an architect and I only dealt with properties that were a million pounds plus um, anyway what else have we done you've done a few talks tonight I'm in Manchester last oh night I was in London the night before that was in Farnham the night before that was in Cardiff oh I don't know there's which still... city I'm waking up in I know I'm just thinking if there's any any tickets available people have to, I think you have to check yeah, online they, I think they're probably done by now we're done and dusted what's the anyway, news I heard so, that Jane I know. I didn't realise. So, so many brilliant London chefs have come through Jamie, and I'm sure they've actually. I met a couple. This is Jamie Oliver. Jamie Oliver. uh, Yeah, Italian. Just went into administration. Yeah, and fifteen. I know fifteen's gone. So chefs like so Anna Jones, who's like brilliant vegetarian chef, Lee Tien, and who's got Trulo and whatever. There was a lot of you know you saw the outpouring yesterday, and you thought what an impact he'd had because that was really ahead of its time. Fifteen. Mm. It was about you know always had social conscience, and they helped lots of people that would have never really got off on the foot that they did, and it's such a shame. Because he's got great soul, Jamie Oliver, and yeah. and you just feel it. And I remember speaking to him about this when it started happening, and he was just saying, you know, the whole shift in what's happening in the way that we're living in the high street. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about high street is, as I often said in my report, this is about if you get your social capital, if you make places where people want to be socially, then the economic capital follows. But um, I'm afraid they haven't changed at all much in, in terms of central policy on helping, you know, keeping no. our high streets alive. So sorry about that, Jamie, but you know what? You'll come back. He will. Um, right, so let's get on to our guest. I'm very excited about this one. So we have Elizabeth Day. I'm I've holding, I'm, by the way, I'm, hold, I'm just having to explain, I'm holding the microphone in such an odd way today, it's actually making it quite difficult to talk. We have to rest have it on to our rest chin. It on you our look chin. like Jimmy Hill. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Elizabeth Day. Just the really dreamy 
lovely calm influence I just I spent the whole time just nodding and I forgot that I was even meant to be saying anything when she was there so she's written written novels incredibly successful and all these things but actually the main thing she's done is this brilliant podcast and book called How to Fail what I'm loving is that you know 10 years ago five years ago we wouldn't be talking about this stuff no not at all and this is about putting humility and vulnerability at the heart of yourself and saying I'm a human I'm a human yeah. and um, I can learn through failure and I can get back up again. And I love the fact that we've got this gorgeous, inspiring woman out there showing us like this and saying it's okay. And I think that's just yeah. going to be such a light for young women coming into business. Absolutely. So yeah, so Elizabeth talks around, you know, the importance of failure, learning from that, growing and using your own voice and realizing and actually tuning into yourself as well, which is something that's so important to you. So very excited to hear Elizabeth. And we'll hear her after this. Come in. <laughs> Hi. Hi, I'm Shania. I'm from NatWest. Hello, Shania. So tell me one thing that you do at NatWest that works like a woman. I am fortunate enough to be able to bring together really inspiring, amazing female entrepreneurs to create I guess a cohort or a tribe of exciting women who can share knowledge and feedback to each other and just get that really collaborative working together feel going and that's one thing that I think is really great for working like a woman. I'd come and talk to you. You can come and talk to me. Especially in your bright blue dress. I always like to wear a bright colour. I'm not one of these. If you ever see me, I'm re- very rarely in black. If I'm wearing black, you probably have to ask me what's wrong today. <laughs> <laughs> we bless ourselves. <laughs> Thank you, Shania from NatWest. And here's Elizabeth. So the short answer to how I came up with How to Fail is that I got dumped. <laughs> and in October 2017, a long-term relationship of mine came to an end and it was brutal and it was out of the blue and he broke up with me, the loser. And um, it was actually that that prompted me to go to LA to kind of recover and lick my wounds. And at the time that I was in LA, I remember not really listening to pop music because it made me feel sad. So I listened to a lot of podcasts and at the same time as I was listening to a lot of podcasts, I was talking to a lot of my female friends really openly about how at the age of 39, I was not where I had thought I would be and that I had a, had a decade of what seemed to me like failure. So I got married and then divorced. I tried and failed to have children. And then my next long-term relationship ended. And those two things came together, the podcasts and the honest conversations. And I thought, how great would it be if we could open up these conversations to a wider arena and to ask people about what they feel they've learned from failure? Because when I looked back on that decade, what I realised was, although it had been really hard to live through, all of the periods of my greatest growth had come from when I'd been in crisis. And that was the start of the podcast. And from the podcast came the book. Elizabeth Day, how good was that, right? <laughs> Do you edit at all? <laughs> have you ever written a column, possibly? <laughs> um, I was just listening to you there and I have this, um, I was just thinking about it because it was just beautiful, eloquent and actually really emotional. Um, but I am... Um, I have this manny. <laughs> my wife decided that we should get some male influence in the family yeah. for my son. And manny, well, I think my male influence is much greater than this manny. <laughs> yes, he turned up. And, I, and she said, we'll kick a football around with Horatio. With, and I'm like, well, I can do that. You don't, you, why do we need to get a manny in? But I've come home many <laughs> afternoon with him dancing to Mika with Horatio teaching him some busting moves. <laughs> the football and this sort of male behaviour is not happening too football much. Football in the hallway. Football in the hallway with me. But anyway, Anyway, he wears this T-shirt and I, I fell in love with him and I came down one morning and he had this little T-shirt on. It said, 
Sometimes you win and sometimes you learn. Oh, wow, Ooh. I love that. Isn't You're, that I didn't good? know where that story was going. No, I do go for a bit of tension. But the punchline <laughs> was incredible. <laughs> that, I love that. That's so, so true. And... The other thing I was thinking of was interesting what you said is that you went to LA because I think that would be the last place that I would go yeah. to. Um, <laughs> a lot of people say that to me. Yeah, uh, interesting. But I, because, I, and I'll tell you one, I'd love to hear why you did go there. Well, I can imagine the sunshine. But um, I always think I cannot bear the chat shows where I see all these celebrities, American celebrities, and I just think I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to listen to your podcast because I am not going to learn a thing. Because you aren't going to tell me the truth. You aren't going to open up and you aren't going to be vulnerable. And it's just deeply, deeply boring, isn't it? <laughs> For s certain types, absolutely, I agree with you. And I that's why I'm very careful about the guests that I have on my podcast, because I need to get a sense that they are willing to go there. And it's why I ask my guests to come up beforehand with three incidences of failure in their life mm. that they want to talk about. And sometimes the choice is very revealing. Mm. But at least that means that I have some insight before we start recording as to how willing they are to be vulnerable. Because mm. that really is the whole essence of it. And you're absolutely right. You don't want someone like... I mean, I like the Kardashians for some... But you don't want someone who's like... A proponent of a certain way of life who's basically wanting to sell lip gloss, telling you what you can access through your vulnerability. I, I agree. <laughs> but there's also, but it is bigger. But I think I, I, I'm trying to think really when we talk about the big names globally from the, from film. I, I'm thinking, I suppose I go back to the Parkinson days. I remember being a child and watching these vulnerable people. And it was just what made it so interesting and what made you realise that we can all move on in the world by showing our vulnerability. I suppose it's been washed away so much today is what I was saying. Wait, you're so speaking my language because I think that of late there has been a cultural trend for an mm. interview to be a PR machine. Yeah. And that means that increasingly journalists have had less and less time with the person they're interviewing and that increasingly actors are media trained with an inch of their life so they're never going to give you anything real. And exactly. Yeah, and I was a really big... so. I, I'm very much like when I do an interview, for me, it's about revealing the person I'm interviewing and it's not really about me. Talk to me about your first job because you're extraordinarily confident. I mean, you can see physically as well, like, you know, that you've got a presence and that, that, that takes something, doesn't it? It takes a while to, I think, also be physically confident in your presence. And I often see so many women who aren't in that. But you are. But you talk about your first job. Um, where you, you stayed for eight years and you didn't ask for a promotion mm. or a pay rise. Talk, just talk to me about that. Were you, did you come from university? Talk, talk your background. First of all, can I just say thank you so much for, for saying that about how I appear physically confident. You I do. take that as such a compliment. You do. And I think it's partly because I'm tall. <laughs> like, and well, it's no, so nice to be I think that's that sometimes terribly mm. difficult. Emily's tall as well. Yeah, tall, Emily's tall, here. but she's got really big boobs. <laughs> I know, damn you. Yeah. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Blonde, tall, big boobs. Um, but I think I've had to reclaim that because it has taken me a while to claim. And I always remember my granny saying to me, don't wear high heels, you'll never find a man. Yeah, lovely. <laughs> and I was like, lovely. do you know what? I think I'm going to ignore that advice and just find a man who can cope with me in high heels <laughs> like yeah. let's change the system Mary I know that's what your book's all about um, but yeah so going back to like it was it was actually my third job in journalism but okay. it, in many ways it felt like my first because it was the first time I had been employed as a full-on feature writer and in many ways that was my dream job but 
I got there and I was 29 years old and all of the other feature writers were older and established and phenomenally gifted. And I went into this environment that was, whilst it wasn't overtly sexist, there was a way of being that meant all of the senior editors really were male Mm. (laughs) and no one spoke up. And it was like moving to a rural village as a sort of outsider. And it took me a really long time to feel that I was worthy of that job. And so I spent a lot of my time trying to overcompensate for that feeling of unworth. And I would put in the extra hours. I've never worked so hard in my life. I would say yes to all the Q&As, which were like the shitty... Am I allowed to swear on this? Yeah, of course swear. we are. Okay. You're with me. I was about to ask you about the, uh, the orgasm uh, anecdote. The Ridiculous. orgasm machine. Ridiculous I got asked by a male machine. editor to like try out an orgasm machine when I was in my early 20s. And because I was so desperate to be writing features and to be taken seriously... Just ironically they wouldn't ask like, a male would they no. they would not have asked a man to do that no. and i shouldn't have said yes to it and and were i me now i would not have said yes to it but it just i just was in this frame of mind where i was like eventually i will be rewarded for doing everything i meant to do eventually i'll be rewarded for being the good girl and i was manically people pleasing in my home life as well as my professional life and i never asked for a pay rise despite being a card carrying feminist and and i never was rewarded obviously <laughs> because what I finally realised when I was like, I just need to leave this place because I'm never going to get what I want from it, is that you have to make your voice heard and that your employer is has their, has their interests at heart, not yours. So on that, that's completely right. And I think on that, how would we, if you are a girl today, and I look at my daughter in this instance, you know, a 23-year-old going into the workplace... And you would think even, you know, my daughter, I'm fairly confident, you know, this girl's just finished Oxford, bright kid. And I see her inhibited already. Mm. I didn't see my son anywhere near as inhibited. What would you change knowing what you know now? I'm sometimes asked what advice I'd give my younger self and it is always the same as to worry less. And I think I was, because I didn't have a sense of who I was really, because like your daughter, I had been good academically. So I had ticked those boxes and I had done well in exams and I got a lot of value from that. But what that does is it means that you never take yourself aside apart from like academic success and think, who am I and what do I want? Yeah. And so I left university and went straight into the world of work and I did the same thing again. I sort of outsourced my sense of self to other people and I cared so much about what other people thought, so much. And um, I would do that differently now. I would spend more time thinking about what I thought of who I was and what I was doing. That's a big ask though, isn't it? It's and huge. I, I, it's huge. And I think, you know, I, in all honesty, I didn't reach that until I was 46. I didn't reach... I. I'm still reaching for it. Yeah. But, but, oh, but, yeah, I'm on the path. I fall off, though, don't you? <laughs> yes. Oh, my, the amount of times I fall off the path. But I know the path's there. Yeah. And that's what's really beautiful. That's what's really... And I try and I try and do this and, and talk to many people when I'm on tour and uh, about this, that just trying to connect into yourself, you, deeply mm. who you are, and actually instinctively. And, and we rarely use the word instinct and often in business where I've come from where it's about data and commercials 
instinct is so shoved aside and we lose that. We lose to actually rely on instinct, which is the most powerful tool we have. I I totally agree with you. I actually, one of my jobs was I worked with Gina Miller, the political activist who was anti Do you know, I feel so annoyed. I bumped into her at the Women of the World thing. She said, I so want to talk with you. And I said, I so want to talk with you. And then I got sort of slid off somewhere else and I never did. I'll put you in touch. Please. Because I I really liked her. (laughs) I just thought you were awesome. Because I uh, basically worked with her on her memoir. And so I spent a lot of time with her. And she was one of the people who said to me, I really tune into my instinct. And we live in a world now when not only is it seen as a bit of sort of hippy-dippy women's thing instinct, but it's drowned out by the amount of white noise you get on social media. And yeah. she's like, I make a real effort to find somewhere quiet and tune into that. And I've just realised over the last few years, because the podcast and the How to Fail book came about almost by accident. I mean, it was driven by instinct and it turned out to be the most successful thing I've ever done. And I'm aware of that irony. But really that came about because I was agile and flexible and willing to respond to something that seemed to me important at the time. And that's been a real lesson. And I don't, I no longer have a five-year plan. And that's the oh way it gosh, works Oh my gosh, that's me. what I say to everyone. And they, uh, that the worst thing, you know, we used to be told and I'm older than you, that when you went for an interview, you know, they're going to ask you, where do you want to be in three years? Where do you want to be in five years? Terrifying It is question. the worst thing. It's oh, the worst thing yeah. you could ever do. Freeze because up, what yeah, that frozen up in interviews before. Have you done that? Sorry, I'm just interrupting. No, just, no. I, I've sat, I'm just remembering my first interview, and that's what they asked me, and I was out of uni, 22. Just the panic. I couldn't... I remember freezing up clammy, and that was it. They just judged me because they thought that I didn't know what I was talking about and I couldn't also, look into uh, the future. I thought, yeah. yeah, exactly. 22, you've got How no idea. You know? You've got no idea what you're going to but be like at 27. Should you. Exactly, I totally nor agree. Nor should you. Yeah. And I think this thing about instinct, one of my favourites is... Um, the Dutch trend forecaster, Lee Edelcourt. And you will think, you know, all the best designers go to her worldwide to find out what the trends are. And, you know, you think this is going to be so analytical, data-driven, and all she talks about is instinct. And she talks about instinct, which I think is really interesting. You think it's just from you, but instinct comes also from your ability to connect with the greater force that is people and the world. And from that you create this kind of energy that guides you. And I think it's so beautiful and so right. And I think the biggest mistakes in my life I've ever made is when I haven't connected with my instinct. So maybe that should be our tip, do you think, for anyone? <laughs> that is the best tip ever. I'm sitting here grinning like a loon because I feel like I've found my tribe. This is so exactly yes. what I believe, to yes. the extent that I literally the other day got Only Connect tattooed on my wrist oh, wow. because I'm so about that. I feel like that's the whole essence yeah. of yeah. life, is like you need to connect. And also, when you do go into situations where you don't meet your tribe, and we've all been in business where you're that, just get out. Yeah, get out. That's the tip I'd give. Now, I know that might be easy to say financially, you can't, because my early years of working, I couldn't. There were times where I was in business and I just thought, I hate this. This is draining my little soul. But I had no money and, you know, and I had to work there. And of course, I learned from that. Mm. You do. You do. But I think when it starts to really affect your energy and really starts to suppress who you deeply are, that's when you know you should get out. Definitely. And I, I I actually left that job where I'd never asked for a pay rise after eight years because I just kind of hit a wall. I was like, I just can't. I Suddenly it was the instinct driving me out of the door. I didn't have anywhere to go to. I didn't have a plan. I just thought I'm going to take a gamble on myself. And actually 
when you're scared of something and I was scared of going freelance but in many respects that's sort of when you should do it (laughs) it's like you're challenging the fear that you feel about not being enough and then what I discovered was that I was enough and it was actually one of the best decisions I've ever made and you were more than enough and you were bigger than you thought you were you just didn't even dream that you could have been what you are that's what I discovered and that's just the most incredible thing isn't it Totally. You know what I think it's like? I think it's like when you are a plant in a pot and then I used to have this like tiny garden in my first flat where uh, I just put plants in pots and I haven't got a clue about gardening. But the plant outgrows the pot and the roots become all squashed at the bottom of it. And for me, leaving that job was like coming out of that pot and being planted in a massive wild prairie where there were just no boundaries other than the ones I chose to set myself. The other analogy on flowers, which I love, is that, you know, in in my book, Work Like a Woman, it's all based on how we change the culture of the business, our agency and consultancy, and put these values, all the things we talk about, instinct. You know, if someone feels that in a business meeting, you don't have to back this up with data. Is that what you really feel? Then that's the decision. That's what we're going to go with. But lots of things that we talk about. And one of the really wonderful things I remember seeing is a gardener put on their Instagram a picture of a flower and it said, if a flower doesn't grow, you don't chuck the flower out of the soil. You change the soil and put it into a place that's going to feed it. And so often in business, they make people fit into a construct or a culture that isn't growing the people. And so many businesses don't look at what the environment is Mm. and the culture. And that's what this is all about. How do we change cultures in business and actually empower and grow young women and women so that we are in the places of power? When you've been interviewing people, are a lot of the people who you meet or the women that you meet and who talk about failure and men, do they deal or try and make change happen within their lives culturally? I mean, the boring answer is is that it massively depends on the individual. But what I did see when I was doing the first series of the podcast generally the men that I would approach to be on it felt that they hadn't failed at all in life because really (laughs) that's just really it is funny but it's also tragic isn't it because that makes me sad yeah but whereas the women were, were all saying oh my god I've got so many failures I can't whittle it down to three but what was interesting was when I spoke to the men involved who had said that it wasn't actually that they were being overweeningly arrogant it was that the culture and the world and the workplaces they found themselves in were geared up in their image, in in the kind of white, male, yeah. straight, middle-class yeah. image. Yes. So therefore, it not only did they not see failure, but they found it harder to assimilate and to be honest about. Whereas women are constantly having to shapeshift, to fit in, in structures that aren't made in their image and therefore their default almost is to feel that they failed. Have you met women like that and have you been able to tackle Everyone's that? Everyone's nodding around I'm the table so, now. I'm, like, I'm so <laughs> desperate. So, so Talk to, I suppose yeah. what I want to know yeah. from you, have you met them, are, are they living a lie? You know, are yeah. they putting on this armour and actually it's become so comfortable it's who they are and why do they do this to other women? Is there an answer why you think they do it? It's so interesting you're asking me this right now because 
I had a, a an extremely weird experience last week and I've just written about it because it, it really struck me where I was sitting in a cafe and a man came up to me and he was like, you won't remember me. I just want to say I've read your book and I love it. And we used to work together on this paper. <laughs> and um, it was at a time when I was extremely young and fresh and desperate to do more writing. And a female editor had come in as the paper's overall editor, the first in the newspaper's history. And I was like, oh, how wonderful. There's a there's a woman in charge. There's going to be a real cultural change. And this man said, I went to this woman. And I was like, we've got this bright young thing, Elizabeth. She wants to write more. Are you OK with that? There's a space on the features desk. I'd like to give her more work. And this female editor said, absolutely not. That girl can't write. And I was so taken aback by that because... I had thought naively that because she was a woman, she would be on my side. And I went away and thought about one why... One of your tribe. One of yeah. my tribe. I, yeah. I went away and thought about why she might have been like that. A, she might have thought that I can't write, but, you know, I have written books and won awards <laughs> for them now. Yes. So who's counting? Now. Yeah, you're I am. Now. <laughs> yeah. And the other one was... She was the first female editor, so she was working in a male-dominated environment, therefore she was very protective of her power. But it really saddened me that she didn't see that a rising tide raises all boats. And that's something that I think women culturally, the seeds of that have been sown by patriarchal conditioning because it serves the patriarchy for us to compete with each other, for us to drag each other down. The most empowering thing we can do as women is to actively fight against that inner feeling where we might feel jealous of someone or compare someone or want someone to do less well than us because there is room for all of us. And so I think she was um, scared, actually. Uh, I was creative director of Harvey Nichols and I I resigned to set up my agency. And after about um, six months, I I felt so sick. I remember two nights not sleeping at all. And I was the, 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 the breadwinner in the family and writing down, you know, what I needed and how much money I needed to get in and uh, what clients, you know, I was going to go after. It was just, it was awful. And Harvey Nichols rang me back and said, listen, are you sure you've made the right decision? You know, we haven't found the post for you. Would you come back? And I remember going back into the MD's office to discuss whether I came back again. And I nearly did. But what kept me going was the fact that it was the culture it was that patriarchal, it was that alpha culture that I thought, no, I, that is just not making my soul sing. So talk to me how you felt and how that vulnerability of going mm. and how anyone listening to this can think, I'm going to step over that vulnerability. Yeah. It's a really interesting thing when I look back at the time of my life that I made that decision. And it's something that I'd be really fascinated to hear from both of you. Eight months before making the decision to go freelance and leave my staff job at this newspaper, I had left my marriage. So my marriage had imploded and I had done something that I had never thought I would have the strength to do which was to walk out into the shame of other people's judgments. Can I just give you a quote on that? Because we were talking about this, because I read this, and yeah. I'll give my little story. We were chatting about books when Elizabeth came in, because we got to love about And I read this by Deborah Levy, and she says, you stepped outside the societal story that offers symbolic protection. Oh, so That was almost true. like I, I teed that up and I hadn't heard that quote. Yes, I was the same situation as you, so a divorce, and then that was the moment when I thought, you know what, I sort of had that, well, what else can go wrong? I might exactly. as well just try it now, because it was the point where I was at the lowest with everyone judging, feeling really vulnerable, and I thought, if I can't do it now, when can I do it? Because I need to do it on my own. Yeah. So very similar. And I think that that ties in so much to what, Mary, you talk about, which is... 
the alpha culture versus a more integrated culture where personal and professional are like dovetail they're part of the same structure and and i felt it's having, our life yeah it's just our life exactly and and so i suppose I, I why i'm saying that is because i think that that fed into the sense that i had of my own strength i realized that actually i was strong enough to get through one of the hardest things I've ever had to do and live through. And therefore, I was more willing to take those risks. So therefore, to me, when I decided to leave this newspaper, it was another risk, but I'd just done this massive thing and I knew that it had worked out okay and that I'd survived and that I felt so much freer because of it. And I did feel very vulnerable. Actually, for four days after I handed in my notice, I felt just wildly adrenalized. I was yeah. like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then after that, I was like, uh, will I ever be able to afford to buy clothes again? Like That was one of the things I was like, mm. I'm really going to have to cut back and budget and all of that stuff. And um, I did. And I moved into a small but perfectly formed flat that I rent and that I'm still in. And I didn't spend loads of money on stuff that I didn't need. And I said yes to every single work thing that came my way. I made it obvious that I was available for work. I worked the contacts that I had. And the work really did come in much more quickly than I thought it would. The one note of caution that I would sound is that when you're a freelancer, there are some patches that will be more fertile than others. Yeah. And there are some lean patches. But actually, And that's difficult to deal with psychologically if you're used to going into an office every day. But really what I came to... The way I sort of assimilated that was... I need the lower period of less work in order to sort of leave the field fallow, so to make it mm. like grow more crops that's terribly tortured analogy basically I just needed a rest in between all the times that I was getting work the icons that, that get thrown up in front of everybody and all you ever read about in the press is these powerful women and we all write about it and I, I, I said this to many of my top editor friends you know for all the magazines it's always these women who have it all that you know the lawyer that's back at her desk after giving birth we know which one I'm talking about after three days <laughs> you know the women who have eight children and get up at 4.30am and they practice their Mandarin before they just make their international call about, you know, and, and they're on their way in and into work and they're making you know, their calls to their charity some other side of the road. It's, it's just a bloody joke. It's a joke. It needs to be called out. I don't... And these women are the ones who are put up on these pedestals and like, yes, look, they've got it all. These women, there's only a few of them and, we, and they're the ones But the press put on the front pages and write about. They don't give coverage over to, you know... Just I'm a, I get quite a bit because I'm in the public eye and I've been a leather. You know, that's why you're up there. Oh! Mary, Queen of Shocks. I think it's she the She licks her well. stamps on both sides. I'm like, oh, shut up. She licks her stamps on both sides yeah, is that an actual thing I just came up with it that's great that's great I'm taking I want that on a t-shirt get your money to wear that oh yeah I'm dread to think where his stamps are getting licked but anyway I just how do we stop that and it's women doing it as well well I, it I, is yes I agree with you and I also think that you change starts from your own sphere and so my mm. minor contribution to correcting that is doing the podcast and getting people to be vulnerable. Can't you go back to that editors or those editors and say, I want a column and it's going to be called the failure column and it's all going to be like, it's go in there. Oh my gosh, Mary, that's such a good idea. I know it is. <laughs> I'll come in with you. Why have I go, fuck you, <laughs> fuck you. Hey, 
Hey, fuck you not giving me that cotton before. Okay, you're going to do it now. You're going to do it after this. Fuck you, and we're going to name and shame. Do you know, um, the other thing that I think, I know exactly the Sunday magazine that you're thinking of. I know exactly, I've said it. And and I mention it in the book, actually. There's also this Sunday magazine piece about um, childless female politicians. Oh, fabulous. Fabulous. Well, that's 45%. So that's nearly all of them. And the reason that they're childless female politicians and they're politicians is because they are childless and that whole construct's a bloody joke. But, and can you imagine them ever doing the same article? Of course they wouldn't. Of course, course they, they wouldn't. And it's a bit like... Of course they wouldn't. Why? Why? But they're Do women doing it be... and it's women doing it. I know, I know. And that's I was what really needs shocked to be called out. That. Yeah. And I called it out in my book, buried deep in a chapter. <laughs> See, but you buried it, didn't you? Just come on now, Elizabeth. Come on. Come to the edge. Come to the edge. I know. Edge. I think I'm a lot more, I'm a lot stronger now than I used to be. And that has yes. been a big, it has been a long process for me. And it has been that process, as Emily was saying, of, like, of finding my voice. Can I ask you a, a slightly related question, which is how important motherhood has been to you finding who you are as an adult that's really interesting are you asking me that because you haven't had children yes yes okay um i think for me it gave me the strength um to understand uh well first of all the caring side of my nature and that that caring was a power and that it was a strength and that the what are normally seen as sort of the, the more sort of feminine, softer parts that are left in, the, in indoors, it's probably been the biggest steering in me being confident enough to grow business by using that strength of mm. caring. And I think that has been the most important thing. And realising that love, that kindness is stronger than any other trait that's normally put and associated with business. Actually, welling up. That's thank you. And I suppose I learnt it before that, though, Elizabeth, because I I became the carer of my younger brother Lawrence when Mum died. Because I was one of five, but I was the fourth out of five. But my elder siblings had left. Well, one going to university, one was nursing. So it fell to me. Which honestly, if my mother had been alive, she'd have laughed and thought, "Oh, there's no way she's going to run the family." But I did, and through that that caring role, it gave me responsibility and strength and I think it made me a better businesswoman will you come on my podcast of course I will she never asked me before you know what Elizabeth you're going to be my friend you're going to be my friend really my god stop I mean don't please be my friend I know where I'm going to meet you for our first friendship date Elizabeth Day it's the Tapping the Admiral in Kentish Town it's a great pub I'm jealous of this new friendship now I wasn't invited you can Come, Emily. Bye. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You can come. So Elizabeth was just, she was lovely, wasn't she? Mm. Love Elizabeth. She's strong. I love that. You know, you can be really lovely and have strength and none of it's false. None of it. Beautiful. If you haven't listened to Elizabeth's podcast, How to Fail, I massively recommend it. Um, I think it's coming back in July. So check that out. So Mary, we need to end with a quote. Have you got anything? Well, I have. I, I, I do quote this quite often, and, and people know that it's one of my favourite quotes and my favourite poem, and I often get asked when I'm on stage, would you do this? Um, but I, I'm going to give you a little bit of background to it. When I was um, 18 and newly sort of orphaned, and I had to go and do my um, audition at RADA, and I really felt worried about doing it and didn't feel confident, and I was in grief. And my drama teacher, 
who was also my history teacher in the convent, we didn't actually have a full-time drama department, read me this by Christopher Logue. Come to the edge. We might fall. Come to the edge. It's too high. Come to the edge. And they came. And he pushed. And they flew. Thank you for listening.